Hello, my name is Thomas. And I'm Gito. And you're listening to I Think Therefore I Google, an amateur philosophy podcast. Um, big jump up today. We've actually got some new microphones, so hopefully um, things are going to sound even better than they have so far. So I'm quite pumped for today's episode. We've decided to jump on to the school of thought of hedonism. Um, I think I was the one who initially proposed it because I think oh, I just always thought the school of thought of hedonism is quite appealing in some ways. Um, just in the terms of uh, it being kind of an interesting school of thought, I'd say. What do you think about hedonism, Cheeto? Love it. I'm all about it. I enjoy it. I I enjoy my the many pleasures of life. So, <laughs> actually, yeah. When you suggested it, I kind of didn't know how deep it, it could go and how far back it went, but uh, it was definitely a lot wider and broader than I expected it to be. I feel like that's just gonna be what we say at the start of every episode now. We're <laughs> like, yeah. So, like hedonism. I thought it's this, but really, it's very <laughs> I, it complex. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's quite a broad topic that, you know, uh, reaches its fingers deep into many different schools of philosophy. And um, so I think I think I'm curious to see where this will go, because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of things that I kind of just brushed on in my research. And there's other things I went more into detail. So I'm curious to see if we both have like dug deep into the same things or if it was um you know you mm -hmm. get a bit of difference there um going through history in terms of where it kind of came from um i think well one interesting thing is the the first kind of recorded written recorded um advocation for a kind of hedonistic philosophy was way back in 1800 BC, shortly after the invention of writing, which that alone blows my mind, just thinking about the invention of writing being a thing. But there was an old Babylonian poem, the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, where they mention the line, Fill your belly, day and night make merry, let days be full of joy, dance and make music day and night. These things alone are the concern of men. So, right off, way back. Right off the bat. Right off the bat. As soon as we learn how to write, we're like, let's let's get real and talk about what, what's the meaning of life. And it's it's dancing and and partying and eating, well, chilling. Well, maybe um, as we go into the next ones, let's just uh, briefly define, at least I think most people would know what hedonism is. Yeah. But as a philosophy, I mean, it, it is defined as the idea that pleasure is the most important pursuit of mankind and um, to strive to maximize pleasure is is the goal so when you're talking about the epic of Gil gilgamesh and fill your belly day and night make merry 
um, you know, the idea that people were saying this is the most important thing that we do, that we should be doing. Um, and yeah, I didn't want to take away from that. I just wanted to make sure we had a nice little, nice little definition as we went on. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, while we're at that, we might as well mention the etymology of uh, hedonism. Hedos being delight in Greek. Um, one interesting kind of related word that I always, that I sometimes use at work is uh, anhedonia. Have you have you heard of that term before, Judah? Yeah, yeah, anhedonia. So, so not being able to feel pleasure? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of like a, it's pretty much a kind of classic sign of mental health issues or, or depression or, or things like that. Um, it's not, it's definitely not atypical for people struggling with their mental health to find it very difficult to experience any kind of pleasure. So, um, well, an, another term I, I came across that I hadn't heard before, just while we're on this topic, was uh, hedonophobia, Ooh. which is a, Ooh. a strong aversion to pleasure or a strong aversion to hedonism, uh, which I definitely have not experienced or heard of before. Hmm. Yeah, well, maybe some kind of particularly masochist person. <laughs> but they need self-pleasure in the masochism, right? I think this is more like you're afraid of it. <laughs> We're going to get into some deep. paradoxes here. Oh, no. Um, okay, so you want to keep going with the history? Um, yeah, let's let's knock that out of the park a bit. Although I feel like um, a lot of that ends up bleeding into concepts, so we could kind of like skim over a lot of it. Um, mm -hmm. I've written down <clears throat> an early player was a Greek philosopher named Democritus. Democritus. Um, I, I mean, he kind of initially started preaching some hedonistic concepts, but then in terms of Greek philosophy, um, where it st really started to get, you know, the, the concept of pleasure being the only good started getting pretty deep in the Cyreniac school mm -hmm. um, founded by Aristippus, who was a student of our homeboy Socrates, um, so he kind of founded this um, school of thought where it, it's it's pretty much um, the only intrinsic good is pleasure, um, and I, I mean it wasn't kind of pure physical pleasures only, because they, they do kind of stress that you know pleasure can still be gained from things like altruism, so. Um, doing, you know, acts for other people that, that does give you kind of pleasure in a way. So that was one of kind of the early um, schools of, of hedonistic philosophies. Yeah, and I read that Socrates um, around around the time was talking about um, pleasures of the intellect, um, but the Cyreniacs actually were discussing how it really was more of the bodily pleasures that they thought which were more intense were more important so while they did have altruism all that stuff on their side they seemed to think that based on intensity of pleasure that's where you would find what was the most important of pleasures sense yeah, experiences that... too yeah like touching on the senses i think sereniacs um would 
kind of really stressed that, you know, on the how subjective the human experience is. And um, because of that, pretty much the, you know, um, the most raw basic unit of sensation well pleasurable sensation would be kind of physical pleasure so i mean they i did see some writing saying that they they would mention that all knowledge is of one's own immediate sensation and these sensations are purely subjective and can in no way be described as being of the world objectively so feeling is therefore the only possible criterion of knowledge and of conduct our ways of being affected are alone knowable. Thus, the sole aim for everyone should be pleasure. <laughs> so, thought that was a bit interesting. I mean, I agree. Let's do it. <laughs> and then, um, I think another point I saw under their thoughts would be that some actions which give immediate pleasure can create more than their equivalent of pain. The wise person should be in control of pleasures rather than be enslaved to them. So I think early on, I think they must have noticed that, you know, sometimes too much pleasure can end up going the opposite way, really. Um, actually, there was an article you sent me recently. I didn't read it right now, but while we're kind of touching on kind of pleasures and addiction, but you, you did send an article to me recently, like a month or two ago, about just trying to control, like, discipline. And I remember it does mention in that article at one point that, you know, that the tricky part of relying on, you know, simple pleasures as a coping mechanism is if you keep relying on them, eventually you become so dependent on them that they themselves become a problem, which I don't know. I feel like that's, that's one of the <clears throat> difficult balance acts in trying to live, live a hedonistic life. Oh, you mean like if you're if you're using little pleasures to reward yourself, and then they become like your actual habits, or like bad yeah. habits? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 All comes down to that brain chemistry, huh? God damn that that dopamine! Get out of here! But also, oh, don't get, get in out here. Of here. Get, 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 get over get, here. Give me, give me all the dopamine. Ugh. Um, moving on through history a bit. Small tangent, but <clears throat> shortly after the Cyreniac school, um, we have another kind of big player um, in terms of the founder of Epicureanism. Yeah, Epicurus. Epicurus. Yeah. And when I was looking around articles online, I, I feel like Epicureanism was one of the big ones that a lot of people said, like, this is what proper hedonism is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not the, it's definitely not the typical thought of hedonism that in the modern sense of what people would think, but a lot of people tend to tag, you know, the classic hedonism school as this one. Which is, which is also interesting because, or actually, well, no, once we describe how his hedonism works, I think there's an interesting point about the word Epicurus. So he was um, the founder of Epicureanism, but he had a focus on pleasure um, that was more on tranquility rather than bodily gratification. Mm -hmm. So almost a reduction of desire over immediate acquisition of pleasure. 
Um, so for yeah. him, the highest pleasure was 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 a simple and moderate life. Um, and he was almost ascetic, like he was almost leaning towards like monk ish in his view, because he had this idea that experiencing too much pleasure if you experience something that's really good like some delicious crazy meal but then it it was something unique and you're never going to have it again then you're going to feel bad because you're never going to have it again so his idea was like it's better to not experience these crazy good things because that way you're never going to feel like you're missing them (laughs) which is one of the ways that it contrasts with the uh, sereniacs who were more about you know eat drink be merry um, and his view was more, hey, chill out a little bit. You'll be happier if you don't really go crazy with your pleasure. Which I think is, yeah. I read many times, I mean, is funny because these days we use like Epicure as, as a way to describe somebody who enjoys the many flavors of life. and Whereas his vision of pleasure was actually more calmed down and restrained. Yeah, I mean, Epicurus is a very curious individual um i see what and, you did there yeah thanks um and it, it looks like he basically sat down and thought what is happiness how do i live a life that is you know that maximizes my level of happiness and i think you kind of touched upon it but what he kind of realized is a, a lot of being happy is kind of kind of reminds me of the stoic philosophy in terms of it's it's not about wanting more but being happy with less because he kind of realized that you know if 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 you kind of chase after things like money or power then as soon as you get more of it then you tend to just want even more of it so to actually and and, and if you keep kind of going through that cycle you, you never hit that ex- you know, final happiness of, you know, having what you're happy with. Um, so that's why he was a bit of an advocate for just, yeah, like you said, chill, be happy with what you got, you know, maybe you, you don't have to chase after all those things. So he actually rejected a lot of, a lot of things like in particular. So money and power, like I mentioned, he'd also point out that um, while friendships tend to be very strong relationships and you know said yeah try and have you know a good core group of friends he'd actually reject romantic relationships saying that they tended to breed you know too much jealousy or or um you know negative feelings versus versus friendships wouldn't wouldn't cause those as often (laughs) um and the other, the other big one that I thought was interesting and does play into the history, at least of Epicureanism, was that um, he'd reject, he, he rejected, you know, um, belief in gods and, and, um, and kind of, of, of speaking much about death because he felt that, you know, that causes too much fear and pain. So, um, kind of rejected those ideas which later on yeah would would cause issues between caused beef between the epicurean communes and um religious groups yeah he was a an atomic materialist so i mean for him everything was just you know 
everything, even if there were any gods, everything was made up of material that was there and nothing was mystical in a way. Um, I like uh, one of the words that they used, they were saying Epicure, sorry, Epicurus believed that the greatest good was to seek pleasure in a state of tranquility and freedom from fear, but the word they used was uh, ataraxia, which I've seen a couple of times, which is a different way to describe like serenity, because um, I feel like there's a lot of difficulty in defining like what is pleasure, what is happiness, what is goodness, and ataraxia is, is this sort of freedom from distress and worry, which is different from the kind of hedonic pleasure we think of when we think of hedonism, which is like a, a drive for more, like some guy just doing a bunch of drugs and like partying it up, um, which again, I think is a good way to sh sort of talk about Epicurus. Uh, one thing uh, I liked in the history was that Epicureanism was originally challenged to um, Platonism, which we didn't really haven't gone into yet, but later it became the main opponent opponent of Stoicism. So you did say there's some similarities with Stoicism and Epicureanism with their view of m moderation in a way. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the ways they, they differ and they bickered, like old wives, wives, husband and wives. Um, hey, hey, it's it's 2020. It could be wives. It could be husbands. <laughs> could be like old wives. It could be like anything, you know. <laughs> like old days. Um, avoid, of course. Epicurus was all about avoiding pain and seeking natural pleasure, like just like calm natural pleasure, whereas Stoics were all about virtuous behavior. Like remember we talked about that, where like there's a natural order to the world and you're just supposed to live the way the world wants you to live. So it's a very subtle distinction, but there was a lot of um, debate between the Stoics and the, and the Epicureans, and many Epicureans actually went on to become Stoics back in the day. Um, mm. Although Epicurean societies did flourish uh, during the Roman era, so there was a lot of them in, in Rome. Um, and one point yeah. I found super interesting um, was that a lot of the writings of Epicureanism were uh, uncovered on scrolls in the villa of the papyri at Herculaneum, which is um, beside Pompeii. So Pompeii was the village that was covered in ash, and like there's all these, these images of people frozen in this hardened ash um, from Vesuvius, which was a volcano that exploded and covered the city. Herculaneum was a city beside there which was similarly covered, but less well-known. Um, but this volcano ash covered this entire library, and it's one of the biggest repositories of like actual writings from that time that survived, specifically because it was covered in ash and sort of frozen in time. Um, and a lot of Epicurean writings were, were found in that library. Yes. <laughs> I was just like, oh, yeah, cool. We, we, we were there like a year ago <laughs> when traveling was okay. Sky. <sighs> Travel. Um, after that, I mean, I, I, I kind of shifted into more modern stuff after that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't really like, uh, I, I, t I t touched a little bit in terms of like um, other philosophies, really just the 
The only other one I really got into briefly was uh, in Asian philosophy. Yangism is is basically a, another um, is is another philosophy that basically um, uh, does incorporate some hedonistic, some simple hedonistic um, concepts, namely that individual pleasure is considered desirable to them but not at the expense of the health of the individual. So they'd kind of, I wouldn't say it's classic hedonism in that sense. Um, probably more like Epicureanism in a way, in terms of trying to maximize individual well-being. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Um, so that's, that, that really is most of like history for me. Um, um, there's, there's one more. But it's again, it's it's kind of straddling modern time and and the ancient ancient time. Um, did you did you do much reading on utilitarianism? Oh oh, I, I get there, I get there, I get there in my concepts a oh, little okay. bit. Okay, right. But yeah, no, hit hit me, hit me, <laughs> hit me with your utilitarian concepts. Okay, so utilitarianism was more uh, around. 18th century I think um, and it's uh, was originally thought to have begun by Jeremy Bentham mm-hmm. um, and the idea of utilitarianism as a hedonistic philosophy was that it's uh, hedonism but I guess more rather than for the individual it's hedonism for, for all in a way that what is best is to do what brings the most pleasure for uh, the most amount of people. So um, rather than just looking at, you know, how are you bettering your own life? How are you bettering uh, many different (laughs) people's lives at once? But at the same time, they did, you know, look at pain and pleasure as being intrinsic values uh, but they kind of drilled it down. It's almost economic in, in their view. Because I guess around that time, too, like a lot of economic theories were popping up. So so they really thought of it in terms of like utility. What brings the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people? Yeah. Um, and then the ambulance came. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ. This is a loud-ass <laughs> ambulance. What I found... <laughs> tough about utilitarianism though was so there was two guys jeremy bentham and uh, john stuart mill and jeremy bentham talked about pain and pleasure but in in this way of utility he actually thought that it was something that you could like quant quantize he was like quantify quant yeah quanti- <laughs> quant- quantize quantize <laughs> um check your english bro <laughs> look i was born in poland all right don't bust my balls. Uh, yeah, 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 fab, fresh off the boat. <laughs> Brief tangent, um, Borat 2 announced. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> um, so he was saying, you know, you should actually just um, decide whether something is, is, is going to bring you more pleasure or more pain. And there's actually units that philosophers sometimes use to quantify pleasure called hedons for pleasure and dolors for pain 
I did not get to that. That is actually kind of funny. But I found it really weird because the more I read into it, I could never find like it's it's always just like a value judgment. You know, they give examples of like, let's say that you're eating an ice cream cone and it yields three hedons of pleasure compared to, you know, the money you lose is minus two hedon or minus two dollars. So you have a plus one of hedon. But then they'd be like, you judge the amount of pleasure based on what you think it would give you. <laughs> I was like, how do you ever figure out like how to maximize your hedons or dollars? Um, but that was his, you know, Jeremy Bentham was trying to qu make these things quantities. Uh, but he had this apprentice or, or someone who followed him, John Stuart Mill. And he refined it a little. Unless you, did you want to say anything about Bentham before I went on? No, no, no I'll, I'll get to it. But you, you keep going on. I'm, I'm into this. Sure. I'm, 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 I'm getting plenty of hedons listening to you right now. <laughs> that's like, that's like five hedons worth of pleasure right now. So when Mill was talking about utilitarianism, he said one of the issues was just that you can't define every pleasure to be the same in terms of value. Um, and uh, he, Mill actually <laughs> disparaged Bentham's philosophy as the philosophy of swine. <laughs> because the way he put it is he's like, if there is like a pig rolling around in the mud and it's enjoying its life, and it's just covered in shit, but it loves it, versus a human who's got, you know, food, but also greater values like intellect and and community and friendship. And he said that, you know, original utilitarianism wouldn't differentiate between the two, whereas Mill, his idea was that, look, rolling around in shit, if you like that, that's a lower value of happiness than um, love or friendship. You know, he said that there's our intellect. He said that there's better and worse values of, uh, of pleasure. And that was his idea. He was like, you have to actually differentiate between, make these distinctions between pleasure. And then <laughs> what I love is that he said, he dismissed challenges to this claim by asserting that those who disagreed either lacked the experience of higher pleasures or the capacity for such experiences. So he was like, hey, if you disagree with me, you're, you're an idiot because <laughs> you can't experience these higher pleasures. You're basically um, a pig. <laughs> and Mill's theory is, is called sometimes qualitative hedonism, whereas I believe Bentham's is, is quantitative hedonism because it's more about just the quantity and uh, John Stuart Mill breaks it down into different qualities of uh, pleasure. That is great because that was definitely one of the things that I saw and then didn't end up re getting super deep into. <laughs> You're like, so, I didn't read that. <laughs> I'm like, thank you for teaching that to me because I was like, oh, God, this looks like. Uh, um, <laughs> well, so. actually, I went down one little rabbit hole and I couldn't find any more info on this. But I saw the word pop up in the Wikipedia article, Wikipedia article called Hedodynamics when they were talking about <laughs> hedons and dolors. And I found this article, but it, nothing ever went further than this one article this guy wrote. Victor Arganov uh, wrote this paper about the pleasure principle. And he was talking about how, um, based on his theories, he formulates that uh, the construction of a new scientific discipline called hedodynamics that would be able to forecast future development of human civilization by... Um, discovering like 
the exact quantities of pleasure and pain that we feel in the brain and how we should properly adjust what we do based on these like scientifically accurate measures of pleasure and pain. But his paper was all just like random hypothesis and and there was no like further info about that. But I really wanted to learn more just because I thought the word hedodynamics was super cool. I think I also saw that word. And for a second, I thought maybe it'd be like, you know, relative to thermodynamics. And it made me think of like, was it the, um, one, one of the laws of thermodynamics that, you know, uh, energy cannot be created nor destroyed, just transferred. I'm like, can happiness not be created, created or destroyed? Nor Is there destroyed a finite amount of happiness? Is all happiness falling apart as we move into the future? Eventually, there's just going to be no happiness, no sadness, just a, you know. Just a gray, perfectly, perfectly neutral. <laughs> like a. Like like the neutral people from Futurama. Exactly. Is that our future? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I feel... Was it? I don't feel strongly about this one way or another. If I don't make it, tell my wife I said hello. Hello. Classic. Anyways, um, moving on. So, yeah, touching on some of the stuff you were getting into there with Bentham... And um, utilitarianism, I got into like a, like two different um, two different types of hedonism, basically, or, or branches of hedonism that I found this like pretty deep, long um, Stanford University article um, that that got pretty deep into it, but kind of differentiated ethical hedonism and psychological hedonism i don't know if you came across those concepts i did but i think i kind of did what you did with utilitarianism so oh my god perfect perfect great well now it's my turn so basically um there was these kind of two schools of thought in terms of uh, ethical and psychological hedonism um where ethical hedonism claims that what we should do depends exclusively on what affects the well-being of individuals so that basically maximizing pleasure is the kind of ethical morally right thing to do um and kind of that thing is that can be either universal or in which case it ends up becoming pretty much utilitarian um but it could also be egocentric where you know you be kind of selfish with it um but that was kind of one of the things that i think kind of crosses in with utilitarianism just where they they point out that you know maximizing pleasure reducing suffering is pretty much the ethical thing to do Mm -hmm. when making decisions and that's kind of like contrasting with a little bit with psychological hedonism where it kind of says that we are that humans are psychologically constructed in such a way that we exclusively desire pleasure. So it kind of tries to break down that, you know, what we do, every decision we make in some way or another is basically our brain trying to attain some kind of pleasure. Um, so, you know, my brain wants to have, you know, a nice 
juicy cheeseburger and I'll get pleasure from that so I eat it and and then I get the pleasure from it where it gets a bit complex or or where a lot of people start to argue against it is when people make you know um, decisions that aren't exactly directly pleasurable you know the thinker like the the parent who's sacrificing time or money to try and raise a kid um, or the soldier who's sacrificing himself to try and make sure his comrades make it out alive. Um, and, and one of the big kind of counter arguments to that counter argument would be that, um, you know, even, even if you are sacrificing things in, in the immediate sense, it's still a long-term goal of trying to raise a child or, or a long-term goal of trying to, um, you know, make right. sure your right. comrades make it out alive. Um, so, I mean, that, that was kind of the distinction between those two, really. Um, but ethical hedonism pretty much is, uh, when you make it like universal ethical hedonism, that pretty much is utilitarianism. Right. No, okay, I get that. Yeah, that makes sense. But Bentham was uh, was one of the people who definitely contributed to those faults. When you were talking about, though, the idea that you know, you're still getting pleasure, even if you're doing something that's painful, but you have long-term goals, um, for something like I found it hard after a long time of reading about hedonism to sort of differentiate between, are you getting pleasure from searching for a goal or are you getting pleasure from actually getting the goal? And then that's why the later readings I did ended up all being about like brain chemistry rather than the actual philosophies. But then I feel like I got completely off track because then I was reading on like, you know, what actually is pleasure? What am I searching for if, if there is pleasure? Because um, I even got, I, I was reading about one debate where someone's describing hedonism as nihilism, which kind of seemed counterintuitive to me at first because hedonism is all about searching for pleasure, whereas nihilism seems to be all about like there's no point in anything. Um, but he was saying that if, if all you're doing when you're trying to maximize your happiness, uh, if you know you're never going to maximize it, you're always striving for more. Um, and you can never know how much more you want, you know, because if I just want more happiness, then does that mean like, do I want an extra ice cream scoop or do I want two ice cream scoops or do I want like heroin? Like there's always more that I can get. <laughs> that, that escalated quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but if I, but if there's no point to it, there's no end to it, then he's like, there's no reason for what you're doing. So it is inherently nihilistic was his, his whole point. He's like, hedonism is nihilism. And I, uh, I had trouble sort of putting the two together. But I liked it because it seemed like an extreme version of, or extreme idea within hedonism. It's the idea yeah. that really there is no point if you're just striving for pleasure. No, I mean, I get it. I, I think that's one of the most difficult parts of trying to define hedonism and and i think i mean looking at all these different schools of thought we've been i've been reading about and we've been talking about um i mean one of the biggest debates is like yes what is pleasure like i mean look epicureanism versus psychological hedonism like these are kind of like very different things in a way um and it's just that that's the, that's the hard part in terms of like what is pleasure and like, yeah. Um, yeah, because again, even when you're looking at 
you know, your own pleasure, other pleasure, pleasure that leads pain. You know, there's other extremes, right? Like we never got into um, uh, liber libertinis libertinism or son of a bitch. I was about to mention <laughs> or sadism. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, yeah. So I was going to be like, oh, speaking of extreme hedonism, libertinism, libertinism, um, liber libertinism. I think libertine thought. Um, in the 18th and 19th century, it kind of became started becoming a thing. Uh, I I have two people as kind of big early proponents of this. Um, a John Wilmot, who's a who's an English philosopher and probably better well known, Marquis de Sade, a French philosopher whose namesake who, who's the namesake of uh, sadism, but. Um, Basically, libertinism was pretty much just extreme hedonism in terms of the Wikipedia article defines it as a school of thought devoid of most moral principles, a sense of responsibility or sexual restraints, which are seen as unnecessary or undesirable, um, and especially one who ignores or even spurns accepted morals and forms of behavior sanctified by the larger society. So... These guys are pretty much just like, listen, pleasure, I want it, I need it, it's the most important thing, screw societal norms, screw what other people think, screw my sense of responsibility, I just want, give, give me pleasure, that's all, that's all that matters. That's, give uh, me all like, those well, hedons. Yeah, I need all the hedons. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm a hedon bank, banking I'm, those heads. Yeah, banking those heads. I'm gonna... Even if it means taking hedons from other people or throwing dollars at them. By the way, is it a coincidence that it's called <laughs> dollars, which is pretty much like dollars? Is that some kind of subtle reference that money is pain? Well, I, don't I think know. it's it's Latin dol d o l dolor. There's some, like I think that's the etymology. I think that's the origin of the word pain. But I don't oh, know about dollar d o l. I gotta look that up. <laughs> Okay, for my own curiosity, I'm super quickly just looking up etymology of dollar just to make sure it's not like. <laughs> has pain. it been all this time? Is is dollar just? We should have pain? known. Everything could have been figured out so much quicker. Mm, from early Flemish dollar, a coin from the silver mine of. Okay, that's well, that was less exciting. Uh, live and in person, one of our hypotheses is destroyed hypotheses well i'm Sorry, gonna keep guys, going with the fact uh, that money is pain okay not really <laughs> I, I don't mind a little bit of money a certain amount <laughs> but anyways so that's libertinism or libertinism i gotta double check how to pronounce that libertine libertinism libertinism I don't that sounds that sounds right like you're, you're a libertine is is one devoid of morals and principles one, one other thing i, I had uh, in terms of uh, just the being rational in terms of hedonism being rational uh because in a way you know there's a lot of talk about or a lot of debate about it is rational to search for pleasure and try to not feel pain um and uh objectivism is a philosophy again we haven't talked about much but Anne rand um, it was her philosophy, which was very rational egoism sort of thing, uh, where an action is rational 
if it maximizes one's self-interest. Um, and I saw a lot of talk about hedonism and the sort of rational objectivism. But interestingly enough, she had this like rational, egoic philosophy, but she very she came out and she said, I'm profoundly opposed to the philosophy of hedonism. <laughs> Um, and the main reason was it's kind of like the Stoic thing where she, she was talking about how hedonism is all about what's pleasureful for you and pleasure is the standard of morality, whereas she said objectivism must be defined by a rational standard of value, that pleasure is not the first cause but only a consequence of like these morals and value judgments that you bring into the world so that you're not, you shouldn't be looking for pleasure, you should be doing things that in the end will give you pleasure, but only because you've rationally decided that you're being driven by um, these values and morals that you have. That was a bit of an aside. No, I mean, if anything, it makes me, it, you've, you've piqued my interest in uh, terms of objectivism. I think that might be a good topic for a future at one point. Sure, I it's very, to... very controversial. Many people lo love Ayn Rand. Many people hate her. Makes it even more interesting. Ju juicy. <laughs> go, go, go on. Go on. <laughs> got, we got, go we on. More hits. Those, uh, we, we, yeah, we got to get those controversial hits. You know? <laughs> Screw it. Okay. What this channel Democrats versus Republicans. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, anyways, so I think... Uh, I think we've touched most concepts for me. Mm -hmm. um, the the only other thing I wanted to add in, which I want uh, I, f I forgot to mention when we were talking about Epicureanism, but I, I did get into a bit of an article which got into what Epicurean communes were like, okay. um, and a little bit about their kind of history. So I found this article pretty much that that dove into what an Epicurean commune was. So basically, as we said, Epicurus really wanted to try and maximize his happiness or, or find out how to live a life with the most amount of, you know, tranquil happiness that he could find. And he ended up um, making this concept of Epicurean com communes, which the first one was, um, he, he basically made this, he made this own private villa or or small community within within a, a building he called it the garden and he invited a bunch of his close friends to live there they all kind of cut most of their jobs and they made this kind of small mostly self-sufficient community that you know each person you know one person would do a bit of farming one person would help with kind of constructing things and, they, and they'd all kind of be driven by passion in terms of what how they would contribute to the community um and they'd all get kind of time to kind of meditate or things like that and you know you're devoid of kind of those romantic relationships or, or money and things like that and and he found that these areas were you know a lot of people found them really helpful and and just very tranquil and and a lot of people found really happy there um and this article would point out like epicurean communes were pretty much like the original hippie communities or like hippie communes <laughs> where it's just like yeah all these people just chilling out like yeah let's just all be together and like do contribute how you'd like to contribute and 
Um, and I found that kind of interesting. My, then, minus all the love. <laughs> minus, minus all the love. Minus the orgies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you read about that? Because no. Uh, 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 no. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no. No. The the thing is, the thing is, a lot of people. There was a lot of controversy at the time that wow, this Epicurean, this Epicurious guy. Oh, he's trying to make these happy communities. I'm sure what they're doing in these communes are just like having massive orgies and eating like a bunch of crap and blah blah. That's probably what they're doing, but apparently. At least according to the history books, that's not what they did. They just had like a hippie community and just kind of chilled out. And there, there weren't massive gangbangs or whatever. It was just funny. And everyone was like peeking in, being like, "Yo, you guys, you guys getting What's weird?" You... And they're just there, like sitting, reading a book with like a tea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I got really deep into these Epicurean com- communes. And then moving a bit <laughs> forward, you want to start? One? Meant... Is that what we're doing? Yeah, let's do it. Hell yeah. Um, although no romance, so you got to leave your wife. I got to leave my girlfriend. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but um, the, uh, what was it? Uh, so, so moving on, like I said, Epicureanism ended up being pretty much not very well liked by, um, by religion groups, namely at the time Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually they kind of got banned or kind of phased out by um by christians by the christians but i i think they liked the concept so much that a lot of epicurean communes ended up being converted into monasteries and monasteries are actually pretty you know function pretty similarly to Mm -hmm. um epicurean communes so just a little bit more interesting history tidbits but yeah i like that so yeah, let's start a let's start a Epicurean commune one day. Let's do it. <laughs> We're doing a commune. No, it's not a bad like retirement plan. I think I don't know. <laughs> um, well, going from the past to the present, uh, the only other sort of philosophy that I, I would have touched on, or I will will touch on, would have, um, was more modern. Um, not sure if you looked at uh, much of this. Uh, negative utilitarianism uh, in the modern era, abolitionism, Um, but abolitionism is is focused on negative utilitarianism, which is, uh, again, because it's negative utilitarianism, the focus is on minimizing suffering. So it's this modern view of can we use technology and our ideas and community to minimize the amount of suffering in all of human beings around the world. But in the modern times, it comes across um, by this guy, David Pierce, who wrote a book length manifesto called the uh, hedonistic imperative, where he outlines how, uh, you know, we could use technologies, genetic engineering, nanotechnology, neurosurgery to potentially converge in the future and eliminate all forms of unpleasant experience among human and non-human animals, uh, replacing suffering with gradients of well-being and a a project that he refers to as paradise engineering. (laughs) So I like this this modern view of hedonism uh, with negative utilitarianism, where he's like, look, we're getting the tech, we're getting like smarter, we're getting, uh, uh, we got a global society now, 
can we minimize the amount of suffering but using technology actually eradicate it completely and just be complete pleasure beings <laughs> which i found super interesting <laughs> but also but, many people debated him about it <laughs> yeah that just sounds like a brave new world yeah well i mean you know there's a lot of um ideas here that people kind of go back and forth about because um, his whole point is look if you look back 200 years ago um the idea like right now what we have we have painkillers and surgical anesthetics so that like if, if you're having surgery there's no pain but at 200 years ago that would have been kind of unheard of and he's like you know what if 200 years from now we have the same thing but for emotions and not in the way that maybe now you know we can kind of dull them with SSRIs or something but he's like no like if we can actually just make it so that pleasure is the main thing and mental suffering is a relic of the past um, and again the way he put it he's like rather than having because he said we still have to function right we need a signal but rather than giving the brain an unpleasant signal like I don't like this he said what if you can engineer the brain or have something you know in your brain controlling it that gives you gradients of bliss rather than a mo motivational system which again is just super weird <laughs> oh my god yeah geez that sounds crazy um and then he, he went deeper he's like look the idea that um um what was it here he's like we can you know engineer states of dopamine overdrive that can actually enhance our goal-directed activity you know hyper dopaminergic states to increase the range and diversity of our actions as an organism um, and live in a civilization of serenely well-motivated high achievers <laughs> like it's starting to sound a bit weird okay <laughs> sounds like we're gonna have to kill people um, but yeah some of the people criticizing it were just like you know if, if you're taking out our motivational system you, you're kind of uh, you're taking out it, what it is to be human potentially um, so, you know, maybe our brains would be augmented by some sort of implants or prosthetics, but, you know, would we just be, someone said, quote, joyful shells swimming through the gradients of bliss controlled by the matrix? This would be an inhuman fate for all of us, end quote. <laughs> Which is kind of, yeah, kind of funny, but scary at the same time. Because, yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're being driven by, like, some internal control that's deciding to, you know make the pain disappear and only give you pleasure maybe at that point we are in the matrix right like who's driving you is it you or the or the ai i mean according to psychological hedonism there is an ai that's kind of controlling me it's just okay not ai but you know i'm, I'm a slave to my own hedonistic desires right true true i think that kind of yeah that kind of taps into arguments of you know free will and fate and stuff like am i just programmed to make the decisions that i make based off what my brain wants yeah because i mean you're driven i mean in a way you're driven by your pleasure but isn't it like in a more realistic way you're driven by your desire to procreate like isn't that what's actually driving all of us not like my urge to put to for pleasure like everything i'm doing that feels good is because i'm trying to I'm trying to get calories so that I'm fit so that I can fight off, 
you know, wolves so that I can end up having a baby so that I can raise my baby and my genes will go on. Like, isn't that the actual thing that's driving me rather than just my desire for ice cream and heroin? It, it all comes down to sex. <laughs> um, look, if I, if I kept going down this abolitionism, David Pierce thing, did you at all read about the, uh, the experience machine? That's exactly what I read about. Is that yes. the one that you were thinking about where you were like, there is one? Yeah, yeah that's oh, the one. You read my mind. You read my <laughs> mind. Yeah. Because ex- it's funny because exper- literally when we started talking about hedonism, I thought about the concept of the experience machine. And I was like, man, like what if you just, that well, would happen? What, what, for for, for the that, people listening, why don't, why don't you tell them what, what an experience machine is? Okay. So basically, um, some guy, some dude named Robert Nozick, um, philosopher in the 1970s from America. Ooh, he was even a professor at Harvard, looks like it. Um, anyways, he, he thought of this thought experiment called the, the experience machine or the pleasure machine, um, which was... Sounds great. Is, is considered one of the best-known attempts to refute ethical hedonism. Um, basically... Um, it, it asks Nozick asks us to imagine a machine that could give us whatever desirable or pleasurable experience we could want and basically if 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 you could would you just plug yourself into this machine and then that that's it you don't need anything else just plugging into this machine that gives you the ultimate pleasure and and joy and experiences everything you could ever want and that that's it just yeah but the idea constant. is like you're in it you don't know you're in it but you get everything you you know if you feel like writing a great poem you write it if you want love and peace it's there if you want a relationship it's there but it's all in the machine and yeah. you, you're loving it yeah and it's basically if given the choice would we prefer the machine to real life you know um and it's 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 just oh and and upon entering the machine you will not remember having entered it oh actually i didn't even come across that bit but i mean i was just no pleasures will get ruined by realizing they are machine produced so basically it's like a paradise matrix pretty much yeah which yeah i mean it's just i don't even know like I, i guess i wouldn't want to jump into it but you know it's tempting isn't it <laughs> <laughs> but i think i think the whole his whole point was most people wouldn't want to be put into it right that was his conclusion that was why he was refuting it he was saying like oh i've, I've you know run this I've, I've i've asked many people about this in terms of studies and the majority of people would not want to be plugged into the the massive paradise sex machine yeah I mean, I, I just found some of the kind of counter arguments particularly interesting. Yeah. Um, like, uh, you know, then as we kind of mentioned, the concept of free will ends up becoming murky. Um, <laughs> we, we have to mention at least once every episode, plugging in is a form of suicide. <laughs> so, I mean, you pretty much are just making the final decision of your life, right? Just Yeah. So... Um, but yeah, it's just, I find it very, 
Well, that's that's disturbing to think about. <laughs> that's why it's scary in a way. But I've seen like many reasons of people saying why they wouldn't be plugged into it, and 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 they're sort of debated back and forth. Um, like I saw a list of reasons of people not wanting to get plugged in for people not wanting to get plugged in. Um, because one was we want to be, we want to do certain things, not just have the experience of doing them. But the way I picture the machine, I feel like you, in my version of the machine, in my mind, like you're doing them. It's not like you're just experiencing them. You know, again, it's like I'm picturing myself in the matrix. I'm doing this stuff. So I feel like a lot, a lot of this criticism, like I just don't agree with. Um, we want to be a certain sort of person, but I'm like, well, if you're in the brain. Or if you're in the machine and, and, and you want to be a certain sort of person, you can be that sort of person. Um, or like you said, I mean, one of the views is that it, plugging into it is scary and it is like suicide. But I feel like if you know what it's going to be like in there, like in terms of it is paradise, then you can get past the fear to, to do it. So I feel like it doesn't disprove the idea that people want pleasure in a way. The only real criticism that I agreed with was someone said that plugging into an experience machine that will give us anything we can imagine limits us to a man-made reality of our own creation. So the only things that you can create in this experience machine are things that you can imagine. But, counterpoint... What if you plug into a machine and it's like a genie and I'm just like, I want to experience things I have not imagined. Can the computer do that for me? It's like an experience curator. <laughs> like, <laughs> give me things I would not be able to think of. Uh, so um, a lot of this criticism of the machine I didn't agree with. And I think people are just afraid of the unknown. Like, it's, it's that jump of fear of like, I don't know what it's going to be like in there. And I feel like if you took that away, if you took out the idea that people aren't sure what the experience is like, like maybe you could test it for like a month and then come back. Um, I feel like most people would go into the machine. I don't know about you. I feel like if it's that pleasurable, I feel like it's like a, a, a you're either in or you're out. I think it, <laughs> I think it, I think it'd be like heroin. As soon as you'd have one hit, you'd be like, well, why does why do I need anything else? It's yeah. like what's once you see it, you're just like. You're like, okay, oh god, well, put me back in. No. Yeah. Susie. <laughs> Existence like, is pain. <laughs> <laughs> put, put me back in. One way that they flipped this uh, question around that I liked uh, in the Psychology Today article I read about the machine, um, Philippe de Brigard, uh, instead of asking people, explaining the machine and asking them to put in, he requested participants imagine that they're already in this sort of experience machine and then asked would you want to disconnect and he said if you disconnect you know you're, there's three versions he either asked people like you can disconnect but in your real life you're poor you can disconnect but in your real life you're like average or you can disconnect but in your real life you're a multi-millionaire artist living in Monaco and most of the people didn't want to disconnect if they were poor or average, you know, if they were hypothetically in this experience machine. But then even surprisingly, he said, 
most of the people that were told in your real life you're a multimillionaire artist living in Monaco, 50% of people said they didn't want to disconnect. And the reason was a fear of change. So he said it seemed like the most important role for people wanting to be plugged in or plugged out from this experience machine was a status quo bias. It's just like, even if they thought they might be a millionaire in Monaco, they were like, life here is okay enough, I guess. I don't really want to change it if I'm not 100% sure of what it'll be <laughs> like. <laughs> uh, it's tricky. Tricky, tricky. Well, what, what does it matter? We're in a simulation already anyways, right? Yeah. <laughs> is it a pleasure simulation or is it just like a like a, a, a medium, like a gray simulation? Me, medium simulation. But like maybe maybe the real reality is just such absolute dog shit that this is even better. This is, this is the mediocre machine. <laughs> the, the mediocre machine. The mediocre machine was because we knew we'd figure out how to make the pleasure machine in this environment we're going deep man <laughs> an experience machine within an experience machine <laughs> uh, that's all i got i got i, I got nothing else you, you got any anime robots no no anime robots i mean maybe i'll just end we don't have to get into this because I think we can do a whole episode on Buddhism. But, you know, the whole time I was reading all this stuff, there's so much overlap with just the idea that comes from, from Buddhism that, um, you know, desire as a root of suffering and um, being able to notice desire and what it does to you. So I, I kept thinking about, like, you know, you can be driven by pleasure but it's kind of like that comment about nihilism I made. I'm like, is, is there a point if you're being driven by pleasure? Because you're not really getting anywhere. But, but are you just like constantly spiking yourself with pleasure to, to what end? <laughs> so I think one day down the line, we could probably do a whole episode about Buddhism where we can talk about, you know, what do you do if all of life is based on searching for something that you're never going to get? Just, uh, just a carrot on a stick. You never, you never reach that carrot. Keep chasing it. Keep chasing it so I can spread my genes. Or, or like heroin hero, I'm just chasing that dragon. I keep chasing the dragon, but I never, I never get to it. Keep chasing that dragon. So I'm sorry. I've got no other enemy robots to give you. Just a, just the experience machine and Buddhism. Well, I'm, I'm glad we got to go deep into the experience machine. Um, but alas, so we could call that, call that a wrap. And to our listeners, I hope you achieved, you, you got more, more heat ons than dollars with yeah. this episode. Two to yeah. one heat on to dollar ratio. Yeah. 